Hi everyone, this is Laura. If you're a podcast listener, there is a podcast I'd like to introduce you to. Best of the Left is a curated podcast by Jay Tomlinson. Every week, he culls through all sorts of content from across the progressive pod universe around a particular topic. The Laura Flanders Show is often included. Jay's compilation is a great way to keep abreast of all that's coming out from the progressive pod world and a way to discover new voices and podcasts that might interest you. Finding and sifting through all of that can be daunting in this digital age, like a needle in a haystack. Considering how much is out there, Jay is doing us a real favor. He really hones in on the heart of the matter and gives us a single topic seen from a variety of angles. Like the Laura Flanders Show, you can follow Best of the Left for free anywhere you get your podcasts. And let us know what you think by posting a comment in our social media feed. Now on with this week's show. One, two, three. The following is a Laura Flanders Show audio exclusive. The Laura Flanders Show is all about doing things differently. Our guest, Sarah Jones, Tony Award-winning performer and comedian, is taking on that challenge when it comes to making a documentary. She calls it an unorthodox about sex, power, race, and our economy. And how do you even talk about such things in today's polarized and commercial media world? Sell by Date expands on Sarah Jones's acclaimed 2016 off-Broadway solo production of the same name. She plays herself in the film, along with four different characters that she's created, as well as real people whom she interviews, people in the sex industry and out of it, with an array of opinions about it. You will see activists of all kinds alongside celebrities, Rosario Dawson and Brian Cranston make an appearance. And of course, there's Sarah's own mom. It's in screenings now on November 8th. It starts streaming on Amazon Prime. I'm so happy to have it bring Sarah Jones back to the Laura Flanders show. It has been an age since we've seen each other and you have been through a lot. How are you? Yes, it's been a whole epoch. I I can't remember who I got that from, but that's what it feels like. And I'm so glad to be with you. And it has been, I think maybe for all of us, I was jokingly saying after a screening of the film, we've been screening it in Los Angeles and New York. And as you said, Thank goodness anyone who wants to see it anywhere on the planet and has access to Amazon Prime uh, can see it. You can even pre-order on Apple right now. Um, But it is such a kind of challenge just to be human these days and to, you know, kind of hold space for all these complex topics as we try to remember who we are mitigated by all the technology and, you know, the kind of pitfalls that come with the Twitter sphere and short sound bites, you know, trying to make sense of where we are. So it's been quite a journey. It's what I appreciate about you, Sarah. I mean, for people that don't know, Sarah Jones has never settled for being one thing, even one, well, one race, one gender, even one person. Um, She travels with a whole array of characters that she has brought to the screen and to the stage before the screen um, over many years, going back um, to Bridge and Tunnel, which looked at gentrification in her home borough of Queens, New York, um, to Sell by Date, which is now this new film. 
Tell us a little bit. I mean, many people will say the film is about sex and decriminalization of the industry and how do we have healthy attitudes towards sex. Um, to me, though, it's really about what you've always been about, which is how do you hold many identities, ideas and, you know, opinions at the same time? Well, it's so funny, Laura. So my characters are fans of yours and I will uh, let them maybe speak to your question. <laughs> Hi there, Laura, sweetheart. I don't know if you can say sweetheart anymore. I don't want to say the wrong thing. Anyway, my name is Lorraine. Sarah is the very nice young uh, black girl who performer who you just met. She calls herself black. Again, I don't want to get into trouble, but we, she puts on her shows, what she calls her one-person shows. And really, that means she takes the credit and makes us come out here and do all the work. Anyway, Lorraine has been with me since the Bridge and Tunnel days. And love Lorraine. Love Lorraine. And like my other characters, she has an opinion, right, on women, sex, power as a, and, you know, a senior herself in a world that often, I think, sort of separates, you know, um, the youth and sexuality from, you know, being a person of a certain age. And I guess what, you're not supposed to have any sexuality. And so in the play, which inspired the film, Lorraine actually gives a monologue talking a little bit about something very vulnerable, potentially taboo, stigmatized, which is her own sexuality. How do we even talk about that, right? For women of her generation, you know, God forbid you should, uh, you know, step out of the, the cultural norms that minimized women's sexuality and made it all about the very heteronormative male gaze. So just for her to be engaging in this conversation at all is sort of mind blowing for her. And I love the idea of bringing, hi, my name is Bella. Hi, Laura. This is amazing PBS, like all day. I just think of my mom and her tote bags and her like mugs. Anyway, um, I just want to say that as like a person of another generation, like you all would say Gen Z, and I would say like for Sarah Jones and you, I mean like older, I mean, not to call you old, but you are like chronologically advanced people, <laughs> but like we in my generation have a completely different relationship to like sex, the sex industry. Like I have OnlyFans like as one of my main apps that like pops up immediately. And I don't see it as like, oh, women are bad if they're sexual. Like actually something's wrong if you're not sexual. So as you can tell, <laughs> the, play, the play, which, you know, kind of inspired the film is really about human beings. And just like Bridge and Tunnel, the, you know, one person show that I did on Broadway was ostensibly about, you know, gentrification, immigration. Uh, it, it's really about our collective humanity, especially in a culture where we have so much multiplicity and so many opinions. It's actually an opportunity for a really powerful, honest conversation. And I'll just say this, if we think of, you know, the sex industry or maybe prostitution, sex work, whatever we call it, as the oldest profession, which people like to say, I think it's really more like the oldest conversation we're not having in an yeah. honest way about something that affects us all as human beings. Why can't we talk about this? Well, so, and the yeah. journey that you've been on from stage show to film is really the story that you tell in the film. So, so let's um, play the trailer. Here's, here's the trailer from Sell by Date, which as Sarah Jones, director, performer, star, along with a grand cast of characters um, and real people uh, has pointed out start streaming on Amazon Prime November 8th. Check it out. 
I'm Sarah Jones. My show, Sell By Date, has taken me to some pretty incredible places, and now I get to turn it into a movie. This topic's not often talked about. The sex industry. This is your vision that you have built over so long. The first thing you see when you Google me is unnecessarily mean. Controversy. What is the backlash? They don't even know what it is yet. Sell-by date has become a war zone, and my characters have become frighteningly real. Plot twists. We are like legit in crisis. What do I need a bodyguard now? If you're gonna shut this all down, then the conversation doesn't open up. It means a lot to those of us that are still walking in that life. The gatekeepers of culture, which are usually white cisgendered males, they're gonna walk in and say, oh my God, Sarah Jones, huge fan. Hi, Benny. Thanks for coming in. I'm a huge fan. The real problem is Sarah doesn't know what she really believes. Is sex work empowering? Is it exploitation? You are getting into flavors and textures that make people uncomfortable. I'm gonna keep my hands where I can see them myself. I didn't realize I had my own truth to unpack. I wish we lived in a reality where I could tell just one side of a story, but that's not the world we're in. This was your destiny to do this show. We still don't control our own narratives. People have walked all over us and portrayed us in this light that continues to be negative. We're underestimated, no matter how high we can climb. A lot of people don't know the real history. My hope is I get to make the movie that speaks to all of this. You call it a, a one-person show, but really, we do all the work. Okay. So coming back to you, Sarah, real person, um, as people can tell, the film contains you, your characters, and then real people. Uh, why? You know, it's so important to me as a solo performer, all these years, I've gotten to embody different people. I actually... Oh. Hi, um, Laura, this is such an opportunity. I want to say Laura because I love the way you spell it. But my name is Nereda. I am half Dominican, half Puerto Rican, all proud. And I am a women's rights advocate. Um, I am very clear that the lives of women and girls, you know, and the ways that the patriarchy um, that we are seeing all around us, right? We have Roe v. Wade. We have the Dobbs decision. We, we can see in our society that as women, it's almost like we're going backwards sometimes. And so I really wanted to be part of this conversation as a woman of color, but also just like for all of us as women and, you know, people across the gender spectrum, non-binary people and men need to be involved in this conversation. Like anytime there's a question of women and power, it's a men's issue because they're the ones doing the dominating. And obviously if we could fix this, we would have by now. Okay, so bringing Nereda and all of those other voices in has always been gr a great, you know, kind of fun and hopefully um, unusual way to talk about what matters to me as an artist on stage. But with film, you know, there's so many tricks and you can edit and, you know, I can turn into different characters and it sort of isn't that interesting when you can watch the Avengers or whatever it is and kind of have magic happening. I wanted to see if we could use this medium in ways that I can't, you know, kind of present these ideas in the theater 
enter real people, the real people who gave me the privilege of hearing their stories. I got to interview people in the sex industry, whether they call themselves sex workers, whether they call themselves survivors. I got to honor their real experience. And instead of having it just come from me, I got to learn from them and hopefully bring the audience on a journey that also, again, honors them as the real experts on this topic. And as you say there in the trailer, this also has something to do with the amount of grief you got when it got out into social media that you were going to do a film based on the play. Now, when we first met, I, I went back and looked, I think it was 2002, you were also getting grief, um, also for complicated reasons. Um, you had, I think if I remember correctly, recorded a hip hop song that was calling out the sexism in the hip hop industry, but somehow fell afoul of the censors who had never had a problem with all the sexism, but did have a problem with you. So, so you have been there before, dealing with grief in a public arena, dealing with, you know, hassle, being hassled in a, in a public arena, because um, grief comes into this film too, but it's different. Um, talk about how you processed that. And um, if maybe from your experience, people can learn, because this is painful. Yeah, thanks, Laura, for that. You know, reminder that this is, I've been this way a long time. <laughs> always wanted to kind of center the voice that you might not traditionally hear. Maybe the more commercial voice has no problem with, you know, one angle on a topic. But as soon as you sort of start to talk about social justice, suddenly you're, you know, the problem or you're, you know, offensive. And I thought, what is that? And I'm remembering, you know, there were, um, it was a song called Your Revolution that was a parody of misogynist lyrics in pop music that never got questioned. And now with this film, my goal was to take the play that had already, you know, gotten plenty of attention from many people on lots of, you know, sides of this topic, all saying, yes, let's have a conversation. We don't want to be prescriptive. We want to open it up. But as soon as it started to move toward a larger audience with a high profile team at the time it was announced in the Hollywood trades, there was an immediate uh, and uh, vitriolic really backlash, understandably from some folks who have been through, you know, feeling like their stories are unacknowledged or distorted in Hollywood, which I relate. Um, and they were just trying to sort of preemptively say, nobody's allowed to share our narrative except us. And what's complicated about that is I think they didn't know what I'm known for, which is my hope is to always pass the microphone to the people whose stories I'm trying to, you know, bring to light. I think they were kind of like, let's break our wrist. And I was like, don't break my wrist. Then I can't pass the mic to you. So it was a, it was definitely a, a little touch and go there. I nearly got canceled. And I think it, for me, it was a lesson about cancel culture versus accountability. Are we being accountable to the values we claim to hold dear in our society? And the answer is mostly no, I find. And my goal was to say, I understand why people are angry and scared and afraid that I'm going to do the wrong thing because they've been harmed before, but I'm going to keep going and try to make the piece of art that I set out to make, again, passing the mic uh, to the best of my ability. The other challenge that you faced, of course, different from the production on Broadway even, was the idea of the entry of a Hollywood um, company, a commercial company wanting to produce this piece. Um, 
Talk about your qualms and your relationship with that industry, because you raise it very beautifully in, in the film that this makes it additionally complicated. Yeah. Well, and again, I want to stress that we call it an unorthodox because it has narrative elements. My characters are in there and this is all real life. So it is, you know, it's we take the elements of what happened to me and put them up on screen with some context. But I really did work with a company that said, we love you. We love your stories. We saw the play. We get it. And then the uh, ensuing attempt to work with them uh, showed me how little opportunity I would have to actually get my ideas out there because of a system of filtration and oversimplification and frankly, just the opposite of creativity. They got to sell soap. So I don't want to sell soap. That's not what I'm here for. I want to hear human beings and amplify the voices that I don't usually hear. And that's the opposite of what people whose job ultimately is to first make money. It's not called show education. It's called show business. And so what I'm learning is I get to navigate as carefully as I can the spaces where I can both reach the masses, get onto Apple and Amazon so that I can share this work with all of you, but also not have, you know, the substantive ideas that I care about watered down and then added to some soap. Um, soap on a good day. Uh, we saw a lot of worse things on television too. Um, uh, join the club. Like me and so many other independent media makers, you created your own company. You directed your film yourself. Um, and here we are, you are, with your colleagues, um, bringing what you clearly want to be a complicated story that doesn't really come down on one side or another uh, out into the public. In the yes. moment that I have to say is one of the most polarized, binary thinking, commercialized cultures, cultural moments I've ever been in. So, so I guess my question is, how's it going? You've had some screenings. <laughs> right. How's it going? I will say this. Audiences are king, queen and non-binary, non-hierarchical, you know, uh, kind of leaders in all of this. Everyone who gets to see this film, I hope, will get to formulate their own opinion, will get to learn more about something that, again, you know, we, uh, it's funny, the um, notion is, oh, we can't talk about that, we have to sweep it under the rug, we can have, you know, pretty woman, right, Julia Roberts in thigh-high boots and Richard Gere and a kind of sanitized Cinderella version of a story, or we can have, you know, incredibly um, sort of, uh, reductive, I think, not that I don't, you know, want to see police procedurals handle this subject matter if they can, but where are the voices of the mostly women, girls, and femmes in the sex industry who we never hear from, or if we do, they are, you know, kind of vilified or marginalized in ways that forget. I always like to tell people, do you know Billie Holiday, who's one of our most important cultural figures of all time? She actually was able to move from Baltimore to New York in part as a young girl with survival sex. And I think if we could just remind ourselves as a culture that patriarchy, the same kind of ways that women are oppressed by our laws, by our culture more broadly, even though we, you know, progress is being made, but it's still there when you add sexuality to that, it just kind of, um, I would say, limits all of us and our ability to be full humans um, with self-determination and frankly, 
some joy in our lives. I feel like if we can unpack this conversation more, we can have a healthier relationship to erotica, our sex lives. It doesn't have to feel so um, kind of bound up in puritanical, you know, the, the kind of stuff that we're seeing that's so problematic in our larger culture, even though a certain person who was an occupant of the White House brought the sex industry pretty much right into, you know, all of our living rooms with Stormy Daniels. So I'd like to debunk the idea that this isn't part of our daily lives. It's as American as apple pie. It's also global. And it's a core feminist issue that I think every wakeful person should care about. June Jordan, the poet, used to talk about what about moonlight? Like what would our life, what would our lives as women and girls be like if we could simply go out and enjoy moonlight without terror? Um, it's a topic that you talk about in a beautiful conversation with friends at the end of the film, and I encourage people to check it out. There are serious parts of many serious parts of your film, although there's a lot of humor there. And one continuing thread is your relationship with your sister, who you lost not so long ago. Can you talk a little bit more about her, what you found out about her? Because you leave a lot unsaid in the film. You know, I really want people to see the film itself because I, my concern is always that we not um, kind of you know, human lives and our families and the kind of constellations of what I've come to understand as generational trauma, you know, women across all backgrounds. And I come from a family that's mixed race, black, white, you know, Jewish, Christian, Caribbean. We have Latinx cousins. I have everybody. The one thing we all seem to have in common is these stories that are either hard for previous generations to talk about, or even for me, you know, stories of women and sex and power and decisions, who married whom as a way to marry up, as they say. How is that not a transactional relationship idea, right? So what I like to do is try to make sure it's a fully well-rounded conversation and include the grief that's there. But obviously, and I lost her longer ago than one might think, but as part of this conversation, I unearthed uh, some, you know, new ideas that I didn't know were there. And I think that's also my hope is that as a collective society, we get to dig in and unpack because what we think isn't affecting us is actually right there in the room with us throughout our lives, but including in this area. And if we can heal from stigma, shame, secrets, and get them out into the open, then, you know, I love the expression, uh, hurt people, hurt people, but free people, free people. And I'd love to see that for all of us across the gender continuum and around this very tricky topic of capitalism and sex and where they merge. Well, the obvious follow-up question to that is, how was it working with your mother? <laughs> oh my goodness. You know, it was wonderful. She's amazing. And I, I got to sort of be grateful that she gave me so many gifts. My mom was a very young mom. She met my father when she was in college and was part of that generation that believed, you know, you couldn't, don't dare uh, do anything, you know, untoward until you're married. And so the next thing she knew, she was married with a baby to somebody she, I love my dad too, I'm very grateful, but they didn't know each other, they were kids. And again, I think this is an interesting generational conversation about wanting to be virtuous and as you said, you know, what about that June Jordan moonlight? What about more freedom? And thank goodness, you know, this generation uh, that's coming up behind me and behind us, I feel like they're closer than ever, but also still there's a lot to unpack there. But my mom, she's an OBGYN, you know, so she was sort of drawn to 
medical school and and literally helping women, you know, give life and or do whatever reproductive, um, you know, uh, medical um, procedures were appropriate for them. So I just want to say that shout out to access to abortion and reproductive health. My mother would say it and anyone else who cares about women would say the same. And working with her was kind of a dream because I got to see a mixture of attitudes. She's an older generation. She does stay in the film. I won't give it away, but she's worried about me associating with, you know, anything that could be construed as inappropriate or sexually, um, you know, could harm me. And we know this, right? We know that young people now, if you have an OnlyFans or if you um, are freer with your sexuality than maybe your employers want you to be. There can be slut shaming. There can be stigma when really we get to ask men do it and it's fine, you know, or the wholesome, uh, Midwestern family, sorry to attack the Midwest, the wholesome family anywhere who goes out to a football game with their kids and then goes to Hooters afterward. How is that so different? It's still the sex industry on the side of your wings, if you think about it. So I want us to collapse some of these, you know, ideas about what is, um, ladylike. Can we just get rid of that altogether and start to talk more honestly? Now, you do have a certain very entrepreneurial Bronx taxi driver that comes along with you. He has a very interesting perspective on all this. Do you think his attitudes changed participating with you in this film? You know what? I'm not going to dare speak for him. What's good, Laura? You know what I mean? It's me. It's Rashid. Thank you for inviting me. Um, I'm the only dude Savage Jones brought with her on a journey. But like she said, and um, I want to shout out an organization called A Call to Men. My man, Ted Bunch, they co-founded an organization that wants to talk about men and how, you know, saying women and sex and all of that. If we ain't careful, it hurts us. You know what I mean? There's statistics about men, you know, watching too much porn. It cr creates anxiety. It makes your um, depression worse, all of that. So this ain't just about, you know, trying to be good to the women or ladies or whatever's the respectful term for y'all right now. Again, I, yeah, yeah, you know I mean, it's just, it's a minefield out there, but I'm saying I don't want to get canceled, but I also don't want to be living my life, not really having my own relationship to all of this that's honest. I mean, I know when I was a little kid, the pressure on little boys, you know, you got to be a man. I wasn't ready to be no man. I don't, I don't want to know about ladies yet. You know what I mean? And what if you got my cousin is gay? All of that. So I want to talk about it all too. It's just not easy sometimes. So thank you for giving us a space for that. You know what I mean? Real talk. Love, love me some Rashid. He has his own relationship. And I think it's really important to say, um, you know, Brian Cranston in the film, kind of shares something about his youth that just, it really touched me that anytime there's hierarchy and oppression and marginalization, the way we have of women and femmes in this industry, the people who are doing the buying, I'm not saying that anyone who buys sex is a bad person or anything like that. I'm not saying the sex industry is something we have to shut down. I'm saying, let's look more honestly at whether this is serving all of us the way we think it is, or is there some kind of way forward that incorporates all of the rest of the awakening that we're all trying to do? I've talked to lots of people with many opinions on this subject on this show, and 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 some have also reminded me you want to you care so much about women and work. Let's talk about women in a lot of different workplaces and how they're exploited. Um, and you mentioned earlier, yeah, what this 
possibility of survival sex work has meant to people to get by at, at, at times. And I think we're all involved in a conversation of how do we get out of a carceral response to everything? Um, send in the cops, send people to prison, punishment as the only solution we feel like we've come up with, with the, the pain points, as somebody put it on our show not so long ago in our lives. Um, I really appreciate the work that you do and you bring an enormous amount of joy to it. I know it's not been easy. I really know it's not been easy. Um, and you give us some hints of that in Sell By Date. I do encourage people to check out more about the film, but I'm curious, you've now launched your independent production, your entertainment company, Foment. Um, what do you intend to do? Do you have a plan for something next? And how has it been working with Meryl Streep? Well, those are all great questions. And I thank you. I, you know, you're reminding me, yay, there's even in the midst of what can feel like such a tumultuous and challenging time, there is more space than ever, right? For independent thought, independent media, like you, like, you know, those who I admire and look to. So Foment Productions is gearing up for an expansion of this idea of sell-by date, right? The idea of like the ex expiration date on your milk carton. It's not just about women's sex power. It's all of the isms. If we come up to kind of a 30,000 foot view, what is our society really about? Are we, you know, doing what we want to be doing on climate change, on gun violence, on, you know, kind of healthcare, the lack thereof, our society that doesn't have a safety net. So I want to expand sell by date into more content, probably a podcast and series anthology type of TV that allows us to really get in there, have these conversations and still have fun and stay human. <laughs> we can do it, Laura, as you know. Small goal there, but I'm with you. I'm with you. Maybe we'll get you back. I want to get you back on doing some of that right here. Um, we have various ways of ending these conversations. And one that I'd like to ask you, I don't know if your characters want to respond, but we say, what do you think is the story that the future will tell of this moment? What do you think looking, I don't know, 50 years, what do you think is the story that moment will tell about this one? It's funny you ask that, Laura, because the play Sell by Date was set in the future. And it was one way that I hoped to be able to talk about this topic in much the way that if you teach a feminism class today or or if you're taking a feminism class and like you look back and women didn't have the vote in like, I don't know, 1920 or whatever it was. I, please don't test me on this right now. Like you can't believe that was the world that we lived in. And so my hope is that in the future, people can look back and say, I can't believe anyone ever locked up a woman while slapping a man on the wrist for just boys will be boys because there were such puritanical attitudes about this issue. I want that. I also want to see what happens. We were talking a little bit earlier about social media and folks can find me there because for better and worse, it is the place where a huge conversation can happen about this globally. And I hope that we evolve so that there's more connection, honest connection that isn't just about monetization and your phone knowing what ads to send you, but is more about a truly um, forward thinking conversation and policy. You know, if we can change policy and culture around these things, I hope that our future folks, our descendants will look back and say, wow, you all were a mess. So glad we got out of that. So one of the things that was really um, striking to me in Sell by Date was the small part of the doc, the unorthodox, where one of your interviewees, a real character, takes you through the imaging of people in the sex industry 
coming out of Hollywood all these years. And I guess one question I would have for you is, you know, what were some of the images that you went into or ideas that you had that changed in the course of this production? And then whether you think the picture that's even coming out of commercial media these days is changing at all. Yeah, I I do remember from my earliest childhood kind of impressions of women and sex and sexuality that whether it was, you know, little pops of the wisecracking, often women of color, uh, prostitutes on the street, streetwalkers, right? That was the idea. And they were sort of this stereotype, but not human. I remember thinking, those don't feel like human beings to me. And yet what they were doing, it, it just felt like, my goodness, I want the camera to follow her, not the random you know, guy who's the protagonist we're supposed to care about. What's happening to these women? So that from early on, I remember thinking, and especially because there were so few women who looked like me anywhere, that was the role you could get, right? You could be a maid. This is, we're going back a couple of generations now. And not that there's anything wrong with domestic work either, but there was the, there were these narrow boxes for where you could find certain women on screen at all. And I'm also remembering that, for example, Woody Allen, one of the, I think the only woman of color he ever had in a film with like a speaking role. I, I don't I want to be careful about this, but certainly a speaking role that I remember is a great actor, character actor named Hazel Goodman, beautiful, you know, brown skinned um, actress who I think her name was Cookie in his film. But the point is, I loved Woody Allen. And I, it wasn't until I looked back and thought, oh my goodness, like this is, you know, a really marginalized conversation and, and kind of narrow lane that certain women, and, and again, the kind of stereotype, the over-sexualization um, without giving, you know, credit for their humanity in addition to these other facets of their lives, that I definitely wanted to look at um, from the time I was a kid. And I'll also say, now I look back and I think, oh, Woody Allen, Ooh. you know, you look at relationships to women and, and power dynamics and possible abuse. And I think there is something that we get to look at there that when I'm a kid, it's my spidey senses kind of saying something feels off here, whether it was reading Lolita in high school, you know, and thinking this doesn't quite feel like we, you know, shouldn't we be talking a little bit more about this context and how often, you know, the messages around women as commodities, as objects, um, and as, you know, uh, moral failures, right? The whore virgin dichotomy, either you're pure, as somebody says in the film, one of the you know wonderful people I, I get to interview, you're pure or you are completely disregarded. And I don't have these statistics, but there are researchers who have looked into how often the whore gets killed at the end or is, you know, treated with absolutely no humanity, uh, dealt with violently. There's a clear message there to women more broadly. Hey, if you step out of line, you're worthless and nobody's going to help you. And I, I think I got those messages really early. So do you think we've emerged from this kind of whore virgin dichotomy in our culture? Please. I really don't think so. I really think it's more complex than it's ever been. But the ideas of, you know, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't, which I think I kind of say, or it's sort of like, you know, you're a, um, you're always being measured and evaluated and sort of, um, you know, 
quantified in terms of your worth and value by a larger patriarchal structure, according to, well, what you did was, you know, too sexually overt, but you're hot. So it's okay. You know, you just look at kind of, if women are in a different body, if they're in the disability community, it's, oh, I don't want to look at that. Oh, because you get to decide who wants to look at what. So I think it's a fascinating time for looking at more intersectionality and getting honest that we, in some ways, haven't come very far at all. And I fear we're going backward if we don't vote out the, again, just deeply, um, I think there's a disturbance in American society of folks who sort of want to believe that someone like, again, the former occupant, the orange occupant of the White House is somehow morally virtuous. And then it's his, you know, porn star who's the problem. That took two to tango. I really want us to acknowledge that we're still in a place filled with contradictions, misinformation, and frankly, what I think goes back to everybody being terrified of being canceled, being wrong, wanting to moralize and point fingers everywhere, instead of getting honest that no one's pure, because we're not supposed to be pure, we're supposed to be human, we're supposed to have these conversations in honest ways across the generations, so that people aren't paranoid about what their kids are watching, because I promise you they are, and maybe if you get the whole family together, you can have a new kind of awkward Thanksgiving, talking (laughs) about all of this with the 13, everybody from the 13 year olds to the 30 year olds to the 80 year olds, because guess what? It touches us all. And the more we can honestly unpack it, the less we're hurting each other um, and hurting on a, you know, kind of societal level. You mentioned Billie Holiday. Now you've mentioned Woody Allen um, and Hazel Goodman. Who made you this way? How did you get so curious about I guess, Whitman's idea of embodying multitudes. Yeah, I've been a a multitudinous container for a long time. So I'm always grateful to Walt Whitman. I'm always grateful to Emma Goldman for the idea of sort of this, you know, the the e pluribus unum idea. I am. You're the e pluribus pluribus idea. I am e pluribus pluribus, (laughs) uh, multiculturalist pluribus. But again, I sort of, part of the reason for Bridge and Tunnel and, you know, other work that folks may know of mine, TED Talks and ways that I try to sort of infiltrate the stage and say, hey, this is not a binary conversation. I was born uh, D, E, and I, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion. These buzzwords let's get rid of them because they don't actually humanize us. I I grew up, you know, being aware of multiple conversations around everything from civil rights to feminism to, you know, sexual orientation, immigration. I represent everything that I hope we can start to improve upon when we realize that there's a small but vocal and very wealthy group of people who would like to divide and conquer the rest of us so that we can't flourish and have the democracy I believe we need. Um, So I hope that, you know, my interest in this particular aspect of this topic is that if you look at intersectionality, right, and, and the margins, if you're Black, if you're a woman, if you're a trans woman, if you are in part of the disability community, if you're Native, if you pile all of those kind of hyphenate statuses in this society into one, 
you're much more likely to be in the sex industry. It is much more likely that because of marginalization, you have even less access than your average person to the choices one hopes we would all have in a true democracy, right? So to me, it was sort of like, okay, how did we get to Dobbs? How did we get to the point where all women, you know, and femmes and birthing people have now had this bottom rise to hit us? Start in the place where women have the least safety, the least, you know, kind of acknowledgement of their humanity and follow the trail from there. And maybe now, as my friend Ted Bunch says, we can go upstream before we're seeing horrible stories about murder and, you know, um, uh, sexual violence against women. Let's get to the point where boys and girls and non-binary kids are brought into healthy conversations about human beings, their value, that we don't just want to objectify and buy each other. You know, if we can get to a healthy world where people want to exchange sex, yes, let's do it. I'd love to see that. I'd love to see women hold on to their money instead of giving it to, you know, corporations. So I think it's all of that that made me want to say, where can we see the canary in the coal mine? Let's start there. Well, you bring with you many characters who've been with you a long time. And I guess one of the questions I have is, has a character emerged? Maybe we won't meet them today, but in this period, is, are we going to see a, a COVID gen uh, character anytime soon? You just might. I wish I could say more than that, but I'll be back. And hopefully when, you know, we've had a little bit more time, I feel like there's a time of gestation happening now. And uh it's flying, all flying at us so fast and furiously. I'm kind of like, well, where would this person be from? And, you know, what's their, is it a hybrid, you know, a person who's sort of um, a, one of my characters who's loosely based on real family, friends, neighbors. Um, I have a South Asian character who I think about a lot because in the global South, we have to have these conversations and we do in the film about you know, kind of the relationship between uh, countries uh, and their economies and sex work and all of that. And I thought, but what if she is living in France? And so she's saying, Mesdames et Messieurs, vous voudriez uh, quelque chose? You know, like, I just think we're in such a moment of global migration, you know, interconnection and conversation about freedom and liberation. And so, peut-être, uh, si vous parlez français, vous allez m'entendre uh, Parler avec un accent indien, et pourquoi pas? Nous sommes des citoyens du monde. If you don't speak any French, uh, that's a long way of saying stay tuned. If anyone can handle the new global reality, you can. Um, Sarah, I appreciate you so much, and I think we've got all we need, and I know that you I don't like to condense or contract or cut the poems of the great poet and writer June Jordan, but I do want to give you a taste of her poem to take back the night. Here's June. What about moonlight? What about moonlight? What about watching for the moon behind the locked doors and bolted shut bedrooms and the blind side of Venetian blinds and cowering under the kitchen table and struggling from the car and wrestling head down when the surprise, when the stranger, when the surprise, when the coach, when the surprise, when the priest, when the surprise, when the doctor, when the surprise, when the family, when the surprise, when the lover, when the surprise, when the friend, when the surprise lacerates your throat, constricted into no, no more sound, who will whisper, what about moonlight? What about moonlight? 
What about watching for the moon so far from where you tremble, where you bleed, where you sob out loud for help or mercy, for a thunderbolt of shame and retribution, where you plead with God and devils and the creatures in between to push the power key and set you free from filth and blasphemy, from everything you never wanted to feel or see, to set you free so you could brush your teeth and comb your hair and maybe throw on a jacket or maybe not. You running, curious and so excited and running and running into the night, asking only, asking, what about the moonlight? What about the moonlight? Thank you, June Jordan.